6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 10 through 14. Verse 18, say unto the king and unto the queen, humble yourselves, sit down, for your principality shall come down even the crown of your glory. And the cities of the Negev shall be shut up, and none shall open them. Judah shall be carried away captive of it, all of it. It shall be wholly carried away captive. The extent of the whole idea of the Negev, the south, um, I assume it goes all the way down to Beersheba or whatever, is the extent of the captivity. It's not local, it's total as far as what's coming. It's interesting. Say unto the king and to the queen. You don't see that mentioned very much. King Jehoiachin and his mother Nehushta. Now, why would your queen be mentioned? Because he was only 18. He only reigned for three months. She was very influential. Very interestingly, when there's polygamy, the specific women apparently get influential and have some leverage. Surprisingly. They were carried away in the first deportation about 597 B.C. This is in 2 Kings 24, which gives a rough feeling for the dating of this passage. And, uh, but I don't think we need to beat that up. Let's just keep moving. Verse 20, lift up your eyes and behold those who come from this north, who is the flock that has given thee thy beautiful flock. What wilt thou say when he shall punish thee? For thou hast taught them to be captains and as a chief over thee. Shall not sorrows take thee as a woman in travail? Now, it's a, a couple of comments, and I think they're being repetitive, but the enemies come from the north. That doesn't mean they're northern enemies. Don't be confused with Ezekiel where it says they come from the uttermost part of the north. They're the northern enemies. Their enemies always came from the northern part because it's the only way to get around the Arabian Desert. So the Babylon is actually eastward, but it attacks them from the north. Enemies always did, even today. You know, the Golan Heights is to the northern part, right? Now, uh, it's also interesting to me how these prophets always seem to use, or the Lord uses through the prophets, this phrase, like a woman in travail, the birth pangs, even none other than Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 in his famous Olivet Discourse uses the same idiom, same expression, or I should say uses it again. Verse 22, And if thou say in thine heart, Why come these things upon me? For the greatness of thine iniquity, for the greatness of thine iniquity are thy skirts uncovered, and are thy heels made bare. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Boy, isn't that contemporary language? You know, you've all heard that expression, haven't you? It sounds offensive. You know, can the Ethiopian change his skin? You've heard it in other vernacular. Well, it's interesting. That's out of Jeremiah 13. Strange expression. My apologies if someone's offended by it. it ain't my words. It's Jeremiah's. And, of course, verse 22 is a little risque, and I, I, won't, uh, I won't get into you know that more. But uh, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Then may ye also do good that are accustomed to do evil. In other words, he's saying, you guys are so corrupt, so committed to evil, that your chance of doing good 
is equivalent to a leopard changing spots. Remember that the next time you shave yourself, guys. That's you and I, too. We don't like to believe that, but boy, the Lord tells us that. We are no better but by the grace of God and by the action of the Holy Spirit. Lots of, lots of verses to put that on, so, uh, on us. And so recognize that, admittedly, they are in deep trouble and irrevocably headed to captivity. But recognize before we get too judgmental that but for the grace of God, there go we ourselves. Verse 24, therefore will I scatter them as the stubble that passes the way by the wind of the wilderness. This is thy lot, the portion of thy measures from me, saith the Lord, because thou hast forgotten me and trusted in falsehood. Therefore will I uncover thy skirts upon thy face, that thy shame may appear. This was a mechanism of, of, of shaming a prostitute, was razor skirt and and that's what he's saying, in effect, figuratively speaking. He looks at Judah as a prostitute. He's going to shame them the same way, figuratively speaking. Verse 27, I have seen thine adulteries and thy nayings, the lewdness of thine harlotry and thine abomination on the hills in the fields. What's he talking about? Idol worship. And he's describing it as, um, as uh, harlotries. There's two dimensions to that. There's a practical, vivid one. They, their idolat the, the Canaanite idol worship was involved with orgies and, and sexual excess of all indescribable kinds. But there's also another issue, and that is it's considered spiritual. They're, they're going whoring after false gods. They're be faithful to him, and they weren't. So there's both a, 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 a physical aspect of it, but there's also, perhaps far more important, the uh, spiritual aspect. They had sought after another God, not him. I have seen thine adulteries and thy nayings. This is like a like a overheated, you know, stallion or a mare, you know. The lewdness of thine harlotry and thine abominations on the hills and the fields. Woe unto thee, O Jerusalem, wilt thou not be made clean? When shall it once be? The agony of Jeremiah is that he's torn between the certainty of their judgment. He knows it's coming. God's told it. He knows it's coming. There's no doubt. And the hope that it might be averted. If they'll just listen and repent. Can you imagine the anguish in his soul? That's tough. Judah is facing an enemy, the Babylonian army. What do they need to defeat the Babylonian army? More arms? More chariots? More foot soldiers, more cavalry. They need repentance. I wonder what the United States needs to, to enjoy her national security. Interesting question. Chapter 14, verse 1. Uh, 14 and 15 are sort of a unit. We won't make them both, but we'll go as far as we can just to make use of the time, keep moving here. But we're talking about famine. But the famine here is two kinds, temporal, real, I mean, you know, tangible, so to speak. I shouldn't use the word real. That's not the word I want. Uh, the palpable, touchable, feeling kind of famine, and the spiritual famine from within. Both are mixed together here. It's a very difficult passage to date for those of you trying to do that. It's probably the fourth year of Jehoiakim, but we're not sure because there are many deportations and invasions and so on, so we won't try to unravel that one. Another issue to get a feeling before we jump into this is the fact that Judah was dependent upon rainfall. 
You and I take that for granted. Farmers are dependent upon rain. That was not true in Egypt or Mesopotamia. We forget that. In Egypt, they, if they farmed by an overflowing of the Nile, they had a river. That was one reason they were so prosperous in those early cultures, because they had, so to speak, the reliability of the river. It was also had its problems, but not as chancy, so to speak, as rainfall. Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent, again, rivers, the Tigris, Euphrates. Judah was dependent upon rainfall. So there were droughts. We find droughts all through here, uh, very common. In Genesis 12, Ruth 1, first, uh, 2 Samuel 21, 1 Kings 8, lots of places drought fa uh, plays a major part in our history. Now, droughts are threatened. In Deuteronomy 28, they're threatened for disobedience. So Israel was used to the idea that rainfall or the absence of it was God's way of rewarding or punishing them. That wasn't some superstition. That's exactly what God told them in Deuteronomy 28 and elsewhere. Okay. And as an Israeli author mentioned, and this is something else but I've never forgotten, you know, coincidence or chance is not a kosher word. Everything in their land was ordained by God. And so in, in 14, we're going to talk about a drought. And you have to understand as you read this, that um, uh, the, you know, the dependency on rainfall is something they were very conscious of. Verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1, The word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah according, according to the dearth. Judah mourneth, and its gates languish. They are black unto the ground, and the cry of Jerusalem is gone up. And their nobles have sent their little ones to the waters. They came to the cisterns and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads. Cisterns, large uh, reservoirs designed to capture rainwater. So the, the precious little rain they had would be saved. And his cisterns were empty for the absence of rain. Because the ground is cracked, for there is no rain in the earth. And plowmen were ashamed, they covered their heads. Yea, the hind also calved in the field and forsook it, because there was no grass. And the wild asses did stand in the high places. They snuffed up the wind like jackals. Their eyes did fail because there was no grass. O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do it for thy name's sake. For our backslidings are many, we have sinned against thee. Pretty eloquent, Jeremiah. Now, verse 8, he uses one of his favorite phrases. He says, O the hope of Israel, the hope of Israel, the confidence of Israel. He uses it here. He uses it three different places. Paul uses the same phrase. In Acts 28, in his official first chapter of the Colossians, and his first chapter of First Timothy, Paul picks up the hope of Israel. What a what a marvelous title of the God of the universe. Hope of Israel. Yes, indeed, it was to be the hope of Israel, but it's also a subtle way. You know what you should hear in your ear? The same thing Joshua said to God. The Egyptians will hear about it. You know, you're supposed to take care of us. You don't take care of us, the Egyptians will hear about it. Do you hear him? Do you hear, can you hear Joshua doing that? That's hinted at in this title, O Hope of Israel. I mean, you're not going to let us down, O Hope of Israel. Not the creator of the universe, righteous judge of all the earth. That is the title you use in a place like this. Hope of Israel. O Hope of Israel. It's Savior in a time of trouble. Do you hear Jeremiah reminding him? Hey, you know. Why shouldest thou be like a sojourner in the land, and like a wayfaring man who turneth aside to tarry for a night? Why shouldest thou be like a man dumbfounded, 
like a mighty man who cannot save. Yet thou, O Lord, art in the midst of us, and we, ha we are called by thy name. Leave us not. It's sort of saying, hey, you're identified with us. Be this good or bad. I mean, you're, you know, we're yours. You're in the middle of us. You're not a stranger. You're not passing through. You're not a tourist. This is your land. We're your people. That's what he's saying. You know? What's God's response? For the third time, this is the third time, God tells Jeremiah, don't pray for these people. Verse 10, thus saith the Lord God of these people, thus have they loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore, the Lord doth not accept them. He will now remember their iniquity and punish their sins. Thus saith the Lord unto me, pray not for this people for their good. When they fast, I will not hear their cry. And when they offer burnt offering and oblation, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. Boy. By the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Those three things, sword, famine, and pestilence, are linked together as a trio seven times in the book of Jeremiah. Seven times. These three, by the sword, by famine, by the pestilence. Verse 13, Then said, then said I, O Lord God, behold, the prophets say unto them, Ye shall not see the sword, neither shall ye have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. In other words, behold, the prophets say unto them, must understand. Jeremiah is saying, The prophets say unto them, Ye shall not see the sword, neither shall ye have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. The other prophets, not Jeremiah, the other prophets were reassuring the people, Hey, everything's going to be all right. You know, We've got the greatest economy in the world, and we've got all this, and we've got that, and it's going to be okay, guys. Be cool. False prophets. False prophets. That's scary. It's one thing to be without teaching. It's quite another to be with false teaching. Verse 14, Then the Lord said unto me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them neither spoke unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination, and a thing of naught, and the deceit of their heart. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, concerning the prophets that prophesy in my name, and I sent them not, yet they say, sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine shall those prophets be consumed. Whoa. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, and they shall have none to bury them, them, their wives, nor their sons, nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness upon them. And on he goes. Heavy. The people were suffering from unwarranted complacency. The people were suffering from unwarranted complacency. Jeremiah was trying to wake them up and realize their peril, but they were complacent, and that complacency was unwarranted. It was increased or sold by the false prophets. Frightening. It's interesting that the first prophecy in the Scripture surfaces at a time of failure. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve failed. First prophecy of the Messiah. 
It's interesting how God sends prophecy in time of trouble. In time of trouble, God speaks and moves and deals. It's also interesting that in time of prosperity, we get complacent. That's when we have problems. It's interesting. Prophecy is never popular. Second Timothy 4 and 2 Peter 3 are examples of that. Prophecy is never popular. Is that worth looking at? Maybe it is. And let's just take a quick look at 2 Timothy 4. He's admonishing Timothy to preach the word in verse 2 and so forth, and then we get down to verse 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Unto fables. You know what really amazes me are the guys I knew in college that didn't accept the Lord. They, they were too intellectual. What really amazes me isn't that they didn't accept that. I can somehow understand that. Don't. What amazes me what they turn to. Have you ever looked at the bizarre things that um, people turn to? In, they, they reject the Scripture. They reject Jesus Christ for whatever apparent reason. And then they go off in bizarre, bizarre ideas. And the one that's my favorite is Second, Second Peter. Turn to Second Peter. You know, talk about false doctrine. This one's fun. You know, I can remember I was speaking, so I speak freely. I won't mention the church, but a very prominent, socially prominent denominational church here in Newport Beach. And I had uh, developed a close relationship with Hal Lindsey, and I was on this prophecy kick. This was in the denomination in 1970. And like, you know, like a typical zealous new turn, returned on. I'd met the Lord many years before, but the, through Hal and the late great and all that, it got me excited. And so I started doing some things. And I had to speak to this breakfast, men's, men's breakfast at this very prominent church. And I described just having come back from Israel and various things we discovered. And I had, I had purchased a case of Lake Great Planters, put it in the back. Anybody who wants, hasn't read this book, by all means, get a copy. And a big turn, a lot of, a lot of things. But the ministers, there were two of them, were shook, upset. This eschatological idea that the Lord's coming back soon is sort of, you know, rattled them. And um, they were about to come up, and a friend of mine, who very scripturally sort of peeled them off to, so they wouldn't interrupt all the questions and the dialogue, kind of in a corner. And gee, don't put yourself in that position. He said, what do you mean? What do you mean? He said, we, you know, our denomination has good eschatology. We don't really buy that that way and all this stuff. He said, don't put yourself in that position. He said, what do you mean? What position? He says, Second Peter 3. What do you mean, Second Peter 3? He says, well, he took, he took the Bible. This is, he's primarily doing it to keep this upset minister from destroying the question and answer, which is, of course, the vitality. He comes and says, well, he says, uh, verse 3. He says, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? So these ministers were upset because of this message that the Lord is coming back. Bear in mind, in the late 60s, early 70s, this was a, a fresh new idea for the church. I won't say it's the first occasion, but you know, the, the church has taught an amillennial post-tribulation eschatology for a long time. And to have this awakening to realize, hey, the Lord said he's coming back, and he is. Israel's in the land. All these things are happening. Wow, praise God. Mm. We don't know about that, you know. The fact that people doubt the second coming of Jesus Christ, I say, praise God. Why? Because that proves from the last, time, last times. What, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts 
and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where is the second coming? Where's all this stuff, right? Notice the next verse or next sentence. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That sentence isn't obvious, but that sentence is admonish, is uh, espousing evolution. See, since the father, things have always been the same. They, they've always, they, they're saying the same from the beginning of creation. In other words, they're saying it's uniformitarianism. Okay, wrong. You can take a look through any telescope, look at any astronomical body and see it was a chaos. You know, a, it, it wasn't very calm out there. Look at the Voyager pictures of some of the moons of Uranus. It's just wild. I mean, there's, it wasn't smooth and easy. The catastrophe theory of history is well documented. Now, what's interesting, though, is what this verse does that's not obvious for you is it links for you the concept of evolution, the second coming of Jesus Christ. You see, what they got to do with one another? Why is it that if you're interested in the book of Revelation, you better match the book of Genesis or vice versa? Because both have the same hypothesis that God cares and intervenes in man's life. He intervened to create it in the first place, and he's going to intervene to wrap it up. Those two ideas, the concept of the creation and the concept of the second coming of Jesus Christ, are linked together right here in verse uh, 2 Peter 3, 4. Not obvious until you think about it, but the more you think about it, you'll realize those ideas are linked because they both have the premise that there's a God, and he cares, and he's involved, and he does what he says he's going to do. Well, this is somehow related to what we were talking about, I fear and, okay, we're back, and I think we, I think we, uh, we sort of peeled off here with these false prophets in uh, Jeremiah fifteen, uh, fourteen, um, and he's uh, pouring uh, and uh, verses. Uh, the prophets going to be consumed; there'd be none to bury them. It gets down to verse seventeen. Therefore, thou shalt say to this word to them: Let mine eyes run down with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people is broken with a great breach with a very grievous blow. Boy, that's graphic. If I go forth into the field, then behold the slain with the sword. And if I enter into the city, then behold those are, that, who are sick with famine. Yea, both the prophet and the priest go about in a land that they know not. Hast thou utterly rejected Judah? Hath thy soul loathed Zion? Why hast thou smitten us? And there is no healing for us. We looked for peace, and there is no good, and for the time of healing, and behold, trouble. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against thee. Do not abhor us, for thy name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of thy glory. Remember, break not thy covenant with us. Notice the thy, the thy, the thy. He owns us. Hey, you own us. So do not abhor us for thy name's sake. Do not disgrace us, disgrace the throne of thy glory. Remember, break not thy covenant with us. Are there any among the vanities of the nations that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Art, art not thou he, O Lord, our God? Therefore we will wait upon thee, for thou hast made all these things. The thy, thy, thy in there. Interesting, you hear in Jeremiah's words the same line of reasoning that I hear echoing my ears from Joshua. Hey, the Egyptians are going to hear about it. You know, we're in the land now. You delivered us from Egypt. We went through the Red Sea and all that, and, and 40 years wilderness. Now, now we're going into the land, right? You can't let us lose. 
The Egyptians will hear about it. You see the logic. We're your team, Lord. Be us good or bad, we're your team. Okay. We're at the end of the hour. Uh, next time we'll be in, in um, Jeremiah 15. Jeremiah 15 is going to start what I think starts today. Uh, it's the beginning of increasingly cascaded references that will link to Revelation. He says uh, in verse 16, he says, Thy words were found and I did eat them. Strange phrase, but that's what exactly what happens in Revelation 10. When John is Revelation, thy words are found. I ate them and they were to my, you know, my mouth sweet, but to my belly bitter and so forth. And we're going to compare that with Ezekiel 3 and so on. And uh, we're going to see increasingly references to Revelation 6 or Revelation 10 other things. And uh, on we'll go. Yeah, the pace picks up. The pace picks up. It gets um, increasingly intense. Book of Jeremiah. We're going to find some other things in a few chapters. We're going to find one of the few places of encryption in the Old Testament. Encryption. Those of you that are students of secret writing are going to be amused to discover in the book of Isaiah chapter 7 and, Isaiah, and Jeremiah 26 and 51, there are uh, encryptions that are well known among students of cryptology. We'll talk a little bit about that. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Idols. Idols. Do we have idols in our lives? You bet. Idols can take any form. They don't have to have, uh, they don't have to be made of brass, they're made of chrome, sheet metal. You know, they can be anything that'll stand between you and the Lord. But what's really scary, I tend to see the problem of Judah as one of complacency. I'm not sure that it's fair. I don't think Judah can hide behind those false prophets. Because if they'd done their homework, they should have recognized them as false prophets. Because it's an individual sin, not a collective thing. They, the Lord held them accountable to know him. What's scary about Judah is their complacency, their unwarranted complacency. And that's what scares me about you and I and us and this country. We have no reason to be complacent. We've been well taught, we have an incredible heritage, and we choose to abandon it. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.